You know, the toughest job in the news business is that of war correspondent. It's reporting on steroids. It's special ops journalism. A reporter is embedded with the troops. He wears military fatigues and perhaps a flak jacket. He works in the line of fire. His job is risky. It takes nerve. But his courage provides us unprecedented coverage. A war correspondent sends home a view from the battle. And in this section of Revelation, John acts as God's war correspondent. He reports on the spiritual battle, in fact, the spiritual battle, the battle of the ages, the war between God and Satan and its culminating conflicts. Remember in chapter 11, John is in Jerusalem. He's embedded with God's two witnesses. They are an olive branch of peace. But Satan's madman murders them in the streets. The treatment of these men receive that they receive reveals the world's moral and spiritual bankruptcy. It's fitting that God's war correspondent files his report in chapter 11. That's right. In chapter 13, John will again go behind enemy lines to bring us up close and give us a personal expose on the emerging tyrant who slaughters these two witnesses. John calls him the beast. And 13 is a chilling chapter when all the animosity against God that's alive in the world today suddenly gets embodied in one person. It becomes scary. Satan's true motivations are revealed. But of all John's journalism, chapter 12 is his most important. He knows what has played out in chapter 11. He knows what's going to happen in chapter 13. He knows that these events are the culmination of a long-running conflict. The battle he's reporting on didn't just break out with the two witnesses. It's been brewing since the beginning of time. John realizes for us to understand what's happening, we need some background on the battle. And that's what he provides us here in chapter 12. In John's writing now, the earth is in peril. Life as we know it is being threatened. The people of Israel are the focal point of the conflict. And the question that begs to be answered is this, how did we get here? And this is where John takes a step back and he now provides us a panoramic overview of this war. Verse 1 reveals that the struggle of the ages began with a woman. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a garland of 12 stars. This is obviously a prestigious lady, a spiritual debutante, a star with 12 stars. And she's pregnant. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain to give birth. So here's the first question. Who is this woman? Now keep in mind, John wrote Revelation not just in the midst of a spiritual battle. His physical circumstances were also conflicted. He's a POW in a Roman penal colony. The evil emperor Domitian has tried to kill John, boil him in oil, in fact. The elder John miraculously survived, and thus Rome banished him to the rock island of Patmos. 
And as he writes this revelation of Jesus, he's surrounded by Roman guards. Prisoners had no right to privacy, so their letters were subject to censorship. John doesn't want anything he's written to be seen as subversive, and so he disguises his message in symbols. John is Hebrew. He's fluent in the Old Testament symbols. So his best way to encrypt his words are in Old Testament references. And where in the Old Testament do we find this woman? Well, Genesis chapter 37 verse 9 quotes the Hebrew forefather Joseph. He says, I have dreamed another dream. And this time the sun, the moon, and the 11 stars bowed down to me. Seems like it's right out of Revelation chapter 12. And that's when Joseph's father, the patriarch Jacob, who later changed his name to Israel, asked Joseph, Shall your mother and I and your brothers indeed bow down to the earth before you? See, Joseph had 11 brothers, and in his dad's mind, they were all stars. Jacob rightly saw the sun, moon, and 11 stars as a reference to his own family. Biblically, it's crystal clear that the woman in Revelation 12 is Israel and the Jews. I've often heard it said, you can learn a lot about a person's entire theology by how they interpret the woman in Revelation 12. And I certainly agree. There are, there are folks who misinterpret this woman as the Virgin Mary. Since her child turns out to be Jesus, it's understandable why Mary gets misidentified. But Mary was a mother on earth. Notice this woman in chapter 12 is occupying heaven. Mary was never pregnant in heaven. She delivered her child on earth. Roman Catholics refer to Mary as the mother of God, but this is a title the Bible never bestows. Mary mothered Jesus on earth, but now in heaven, she's one of many believers. She's a child of God, not the mother of God. Mary was a godly lady, no doubt, but never make more of her than what the Bible does. She'd be embarrassed. Other folks see this woman as the church, but this can't be. The church didn't birth Jesus, just the opposite occurred. Jesus birthed his church. I believe strongly this woman here in Revelation 12 is none other than the nation of Israel. It's the people of the Jews. John couches her couches this woman in symbolism that's unmistakable. Joseph's dream affirms her identity. Now, it's interesting, humans stay pregnant for nine months, give or take. Did you know rhinoceroses are pregnant for 15 months? And ladies, be glad you're not an elephant. Elephants stay pregnant for 21 months. But realize the nation Israel was pregnant with promise for 4,000 years. God promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, then later to King David, that through their collective lineage, a Savior would be born. Salvation would come through their descendant. Thus, Jesus was born of Jewish stock. With this pedigree of promise, he was the child of Lady Israel. It seems to me that you can usually tell when a woman's pregnant. She radiates. There's a glow about her. She sparkles. You know when she's pregnant, you can just tell. 
If I were president of the United States, my first proclamation would be special treatment for all pregnant women. Pregnant women could park in handicapped parking spots, go to the head of all checkout lines. All OBGYN waiting rooms would be required to have chairs with extra padding. Pregnant women would get control of all TV remotes as long as it wasn't football season. If you know a pregnant mom, I hope you're treating her with extra special care. But that's not the case with this woman in Revelation chapter 12. When she's ready to deliver, she gets threatened by a devouring dragon. Verse 3, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his heads. This appears to be something out of a Jurassic Park movie. What Steven Spielberg could do with a seven-headed dragon. This woman has attracted some scary company. Now, as we all know, God has a triune nature. He is one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The true God is the great originator, but Satan is a copycat. He's an imitator, an impersonator. Satan's kingdom tries to come off like God's kingdom, so he seeks to fulfill his ambitions with a trio of leaders. And in the next two chapters, they're introduced to us. Chapters 12 and 13 present the unholy trinity, the dragon here in chapter 12, or Satan, the beast rising up out of the sea in chapter 13, or the Antichrist, and the beast coming out of the earth, the Antichrist's evil minion, the false prophet. The seven heads and ten horns are associated with this unholy trinity, especially the beast or the Antichrist. In Revelation 17, verse 7, we learn that the seven heads represent a geographical place. There's seven hills. In the writings of antiquity, Rome was almost always referred to as the city on seven hills. Apparently, the political entity that Satan seizes control of and uses in the last days is a revival of Rome. Its hub is in Europe. Ten horns represent a political base. These horns were seen by the prophet Daniel in chapter 7 of his prophecy. Evidently, a European confederacy becomes Satan's end times power block, and it consists of ten nations or ten divisions. The seven diadems or laurel wreaths refer to the victor's crown. The authority and power wielded by Satan and the beast will be wrestled away from the nations. Now in verse 4, John gives a little of the dragon's history. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. Now if you're still having trouble with the identity of the dragon, just drop down to verse 9. John makes it simple. He refers to him by name. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan. The first time we see the devil is in Genesis. He appears in the Garden of Eden to Adam and Eve as a snake. Later, the snake is cursed to crawl on his belly and eat the dust of the earth. If he's to crawl on his belly, the implication is is that he once had legs. 
And a snake with legs is a what? A dragon. This is why Chinese restaurants creep me out. (laughs) They're always decorated with dragons. That's the biblical, that's the ancient symbol for Satan. Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 provide us background on Satan. He was formerly an angel, the archangel, Lucifer. He was beautiful. He was a musical creature. Many people believe Satan was heaven's worship leader. That is until pride entered his heart. At some point, he stopped worshiping God and worshiped himself. And that's when God booted him off of heaven's worship team. In Luke 10, verse 18, Jesus reveals his own preexistence by saying, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Jesus was there at Lucifer's demotion. And it wasn't just Satan that fell. According to verse 4 here, we're told that he took a third of the stars of heaven with him. The stars of heaven is a biblical idiom for angels. Reference Revelation 1 verse 20 or Job verse 38 verse, chapter 38 verse 7. When Satan fell from heaven, he took a third of God's angels with him. Today, those fallen angels are the devil's demons. What a cast of characters for this battle of the ages. A dragon, a beast, the angels, a pregnant lady. As most of you know, over the last eight years, Kathy and I have gone from zero grandchildren to ten grandchildren. Which means I've spent a lot of time around pregnant women over the last 10 years, 8 years. And here's what I've noticed about pregnant ladies. No matter how well they're treated, the delivery can't come fast enough. I'll bet you've never met a woman who wasn't ready to give birth her, to birth her baby after a 9-month pregnancy. Any of you ladies wanted to go another month? Absolutely not. See, a pregnant woman glows... But she also grows. Her limbs swell with water. The baby starts jabbing mom in the ribs. She can't tie her shoes. She waddles like a duck. At times, those nine months seem like an eternity. Ladies, just be glad you're not like the pregnant woman we find in Revelation 12. She stays pregnant for 4,000 years. And she's treated harshly. Nothing goes smoothly for this lady. It's a high-risk pregnancy and delivery. John tells us, verse 3, And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. This dragon stalks the lady until she gives birth, then tries to pounce on her child. That's no way to treat a mom and her baby. You know, the Bible teaches us that the conflict between the dragon and the woman began as far back as the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 3, verse 15, when God cursed the serpent, he said, And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And to this day, very few women I know like snakes. That's not all he meant. The plot thickens. He says, And between your seed and her seed. Now, a woman doesn't have a seed. Obviously, the seed comes from the man. And thus, many Bible scholars interpret this idiom as the virgin birth of Jesus. He was born without a man. He was uniquely the woman's seed. 
Thus, there'll be a perpetual enmity or hostility between Jesus and the serpent. In fact, Genesis 3 predicts the battle will reach a climax that Jesus shall bruise the serpent's head and he shall bruise Jesus' heel. The long-running conflict will be bloody and violent. The serpent, that is the devil, will wound Jesus. He'll draw blood, but it won't be fatal. In the big picture, it's nothing but a heel bruise. It's Jesus who will wield the decisive blow. On the cross, he threw down his heavy sandal and he crushed the serpent's head. Jesus shattered Satan's authority. And this is why Satan has worked so hard to wipe out the Messiah when he tried to wipe him out before he was born. He wanted to stop the Messiah, the promised child, from being born. You remember immediately, After the Garden of Eden, Satan went to work corrupting the hearts of men and women, even to the point when God regretted he had even created man. I'm sure the dragon squealed with glee when he heard of God's plan to destroy the world with water. The devil thought he had drowned out all hope of a Savior, but God spared a man of faith named Noah and kept hope alive for a world shrouded in darkness. When God narrowed the promise to a branch of Noah's family, Israel, that is the heirs of Abraham, Satan again went to work on the destruction of the promise. He thought he had succeeded. The Red Sea was on one side. The revenge-seeking Egyptian army was on the other side. Surely the people of promise would be annihilated once and for all. But again, God worked a miracle and rolled back the waters. The Israelites walked safely across on dry ground. After the promise narrowed to the lineage of David, numerous attacks were launched on the royal family. You remember a wicked queen, Athaliah, nearly wiped out the promise when she tried to kill off all of David's heirs. She didn't know that one of the boys was secretly hidden. Later, Joash was brought to power in a priestly coup d'etat. Jewish history was checkered with multiple near misses where Satan tried and failed to wipe out the promise before the woman could give birth to the Messiah. By the time we get to Bethlehem, the battle had seen its casualties. The struggle had been a bloody one. You know, on my trips to Israel, I always, over the years, I've tried to buy all of my family members a nativity set from Bethlehem. How cool is that to have a nativity set from Bethlehem? To have an olive wood nativity set uh, made from the Mount of Olives. That's really cool. I've tried to do that for all of, my, uh, all of my kids. Most of the sets come with a Mary. There's a Joseph. There's an angel. There's a few shepherd figurines and some barnyard animals. And if you're a good haggler, you can get a few camels thrown in. But I'll bet you've never seen a nativity scene with a dragon. And yet it's biblical. This is the real nativity scene. If you had been in heaven looking down on the first Christmas, here's what you would have seen, verse 3. The dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour her child as soon as it was born. The battle of the ages had no Christmas ceasefire. The Messiah was born with a dragon with seven heads and seven sharp, sharp sets of sharp teeth standing by, licking its chops. Satan couldn't stand the thought that he'd one day bow to this baby. One author pins, 
the dragon wants to eat the child so it doesn't have to kiss his feet. And sadly, it was this fiery dragon who inspired the evil King Herod to slaughter all the town's toddlers. Ironically, the first Christmas-inspired song, the inaugural Christmas carol, was sung by Bethlehem's grieving moms. Matthew 2, verse 18 records the mourning. A voice was heard in Ramah, lamentation, weeping, and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. As John overviews the spiritual war, the war of the ages, he correctly identifies the birth of Jesus as the pivotal battle. Certainly Satan sensed it as well. That's why he was there in full dragon mode to resist Jesus' coming into the world. This was the one victory that signaled a turning point in the entire war. Think of Christmas as a beachhead. Christmas is Christianity's Normandy. As one author put it, the nativity was an all-out invasion on enemy-occupied territory. Every gun in the arsenal of darkness was aimed in the little baby's direction, yet he still triumphed. The baby slipped behind enemy lines. If Satan could have thwarted Jesus' birth, he could have kept God from invading his turf. If Jesus hadn't entered the world, all of Satan's gains would have been assured. Surely there were more skirmishes to come. The battle continued after Jesus' birth. Remember an angry mob of Jewish legalists tried to push Jesus off a cliff in Nazareth and kill him. Demons tried to stir up a storm at sea and to drown him. Jealous Jewish leaders plotted ways to kill him. Jews and Romans alike conspired to flog and crucify Jesus. They even sealed his grave with a stone. But as John sees it, when the male child was born at Christmas, it was the beginning of the end for Satan. With Jesus in the world, it was only a matter of time. The dominoes started to fall. Jesus' sinless life, his miracles, his teaching... His crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension, the establishment of his church, it all led to Jesus' inevitable triumph. Notice verse 5. She bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. That's a reference to Psalm 2. And her child was caught up to God and his throne. The child promised to Israel and born in Bethlehem will rule the nations. And this is what all of history is barreling toward, the kingdom of Christ. When Jesus returns, it'll be his way or the highway. Allegiance will be mandatory. Hey, Jesus isn't running for office. He's not campaigning for votes. Our world is a jungle, but Jesus is the king of the jungle. Ultimately, the male child will rule all nations of the world. But what happens to the woman who birthed him? What will happen to the Jews? Well, John tells us in verse 6, Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. Now, John fast-forwards from the time of Christ to the end of the age. And if this were a movie, between verses 5 and 6, the caption would read, thousands of years later. The time frame, 1,260 days, refers to the scene we studied back in chapter 11. 
the Hebrew prophet Daniel, he saw a final period of seven years in which God will wrap up his plans for his people Israel and the world at large. Daniel 9 tells us that this last seven years starts with a treaty. A Roman leader will strike a deal with Israel. At that point, you can mark off seven years to the day of Messiah's return. And Daniel tells us that a terrible deed will occur at the midpoint of that last seven years. At the 1,260-day mark, this Roman leader that Israel trusted will enter the temple and desecrate God's altar. This violates the promise he made to the Jews. And the betrayal will scare Lady Israel. She'll flee to the desert to a refuge that God has specifically prepared. There she'll be supernaturally fed and protected for a final 42 months. Recall after the Hebrews exited Egypt, God fed them in the desert for 40 years. He can handle 42 months. It'll be like Elijah when he was a fugitive from King Ahab. God hid him in the wilderness and catered two meals a day to the prophet. God can take care of Israel and Elijah. He can provide and protect for these future Jews. At the midway point of this final seven years, whatever crime the Roman leader commits, it's not only does it scare the lady on earth, but it causes turmoil in heaven. For we read in verse 7, and war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought with the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. And I'll bet you Michael has been training for this moment. We know from the scripture he's a warrior angel. He's one bad hombre. Daniel 12 verse 1 says that he's fiercely loyal to the Jews. And he's tangled with the devil before on two other occasions. Check out Daniel 10 and Jude 9. And on top of that, Michael has had to stand there and he's had to stand down and he's had to listen to Satan whenever he's approached God's throne. According to Job 1 and 2, Satan still has access to the throne of God. And I'm sure Michael is weary of seeing Satan there boasting and bullying people. He's been biding his time. Hey, Michael is waiting to rumble. Well, at the midpoint of this final seven-year period, Satan will go too far. Revelation 13 tells us that his partner, the beast, sets up his own image in the temple and claims to be God. He requires the world to worship him. And this is when war breaks out in heaven. Michael will have had enough. He and the angels loyal to God. They have Satan outnumbered two to one. And they'll end up barring him, fighting against him and barring him from heaven. And what this war looks like, who knows? I mean, how do angels and demons do combat? It'll probably make an MMA cage fight look like a ballet. All I know is that in 2 Kings chapter 19, one angel, one angel now, kills 185,000 Assyrian troops in a single night. Can you imagine a war between angels? Angels have some serious swag on the battlefield. These galactic heavyweights will go toe-to-toe. It'll make a Star Wars movie look like a dart throw. In the end, Michael's troops defeat Satan's hellish forces 
and bar him from heaven once and for all. And verse 9 records the aftermath. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. This is the beginning of the great deceiver's demise. For centuries, he's lied and manipulated and kept people in the dark, kept them blinded. And and you know what? If you have not been immersed in God's word, chances are you also have been deceived. This is why we need to be challenged to take every assumption, to take every thought, and to challenge it with biblical truth. Hey, the whole world has been deceived, he says. That includes us unless we've come to the light, unless we've immersed ourselves in God's word. This is why in Ephesians 4 verse 23, Paul encourages every follower of Jesus to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, lest you fall prey to the lies you've believed from Satan. There's a verse in Isaiah 14 that speaks of Satan when he's finally cast out of heaven and we finally lay eyes on who it was we were fighting all along. It says, those who see you will gaze at you and consider you saying, is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms, who made the world as a wilderness and destroyed its cities? Is this the man? When you see a defeated, puny, conquered Satan, it'll dawn on you that the only power he had was the power you gave him by believing in his lies. Is this the man that we allowed such sway? In verse 10, no one in heaven is crying over Satan's banishment. Heaven erupts in joy and praise when heaven gets barred. I'm sorry, when Satan gets barred from heaven. It says, Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength and the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren who accused them both before our God day and night has been cast down. Good riddance, heaven says. The name Satan means adversary. Devil is accuser. The Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And this is how he works. He works to condemn us. God is rich in mercy, whereas the devil wants to bury you under a mound of guilt and criticism. But remember, Jesus was buried so that you don't have to be. He died in our place so that God could pardon us forever. We need to hang our hopes on Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those of us who are in Christ Jesus. Aren't you glad? Don't let Satan use your failure to destroy your faith. Trust Jesus. Here's a great quote to memorize. Whenever the devil reminds you of your past, remind him of his future. And verse 11 are the keys to our victory. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they did not love their lives to the death. Here's how you maintain a strong faith that overcomes the lies of the devil. You cultivate three attitudes. 
First, you trust in the blood of the lamb. See, God's power is in the blood. And if you had been an Old Testament Jew, you would have known this instinctively. For for whenever you sinned, you would bring a little lamb to the temple. And there you would watch the priest lay his hands on the head of that lamb and confess your sins over that lamb. Then he would take a butcher knife and he would put it to that little lamb's throat and he would slit it on your behalf. And you would sit there watching this, knowing that the lamb was innocent. He had done nothing wrong. It's me that sinned, not this lamb. And yet you'd have to sit there and you would watch it whimper and then its knees buckle and then it die. And you would know it was all your fault. But you would also know that it was sinless blood. It was necessary for you to be forgiven. There there was no other way for you to be forgiven than to sacrifice that little lamb. A Jew raised in the temple would never take his sin lightly, nor his forgiveness. He was aware of the necessity of the blood. And the same is now true of the blood of Jesus For it's by his blood and his blood alone that we're forgiven and accepted and freed from our guilt. Hey, these people overcame the guilt and overcame the lies of Satan by remembering the blood of the lamb. And then the second attitude that helped them overcome was the word of their testimony. You know, it's been said, a man with an experience is never at the mercy of a man with an argument. Hey, you you can argue theories with me. You can argue different things, but you can't argue my experience. I know what I know. I was there. I remember the time, the day, the exact place when I knelt to my knees and committed my life to Jesus and he came into my heart. I was there, man. It was real. There's no denying my testimony, what happened to me. But without a time and a place, you have no landmarks. You'll wander from where you've been. You'll wonder about who you are and where you're headed. This is why all Christians should nail down their testimony, stake a claim of God's promise of salvation. And then the third attitude that makes for a strong faith is selflessness. He says they did not love their lives to the death. See, some things are more important than life. Pleasing Jesus, glorifying God. Treasure in heaven, the truth of God's word. The eternal souls around us are of greater worth than anything that this life can give us. It's been said, you don't start living until you're first ready to die. Knowing what matters most is what helps us overcome. Now a crowd now appears in heaven. They've struggled with Satan and they've triumphed. And that's why they know what to expect from him now, now that he's been kicked out of heaven. Verse 12, it says, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and the sea, for the devil has come down to you having great wrath because he knows that he has a short time. This is not a good time to be alive on the earth. From here on out, Satan is on the warpath. You think the devil's vile and vicious now. Just wait until he's booted out of heaven. He'll act like a death row escapee with nothing to lose, seething, frothing with resentment, 
Satan will strike back at God as viciously as he can. He'll try to hit God where it hurts him most. And guess where he aims? If you wanted to hurt me, all you'd have to do is go after my kids. I'd rather die a thousand deaths before I'd see harm come to one of my children. And this is Satan's vengeful strategy. He goes after God's kids on earth, the Jews. See, I believe all forms of prejudice and bigotry are sinful. But in my opinion, there's something especially sinister about anti-Semiticism. Satan hates whoever God loves. See, the devil crucified Jesus. But at this point, Jesus is out of his reach. He's in heaven. He once persecuted the church, but the rapture's taken us out of his grasp. Now that the Lord and his church are no longer vulnerable, Satan zeroes in on the one people group still left on earth. Those that God chose in the past and he will again in the future, he zeroes in on Israel. Satan will try to destroy the woman who birthed the male child. Satan is no gentleman. He's going to try to rough up the lady. He's never learned that you just don't hit girls. This is what we're told in verse 13. Now when the dragon saw that he had been cast to the earth, he persecuted the woman who gave birth to the male child. His reflex is to attack God's people, Israel. Remember what Jesus said to his disciples, his Jewish disciples in Matthew 24, verse 16. He said, when you see the Antichrist defile the temple, let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. In other words, run for the hills, head to the wilderness. Terrible persecution is on the horizon. Verse 14, but the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. God will give her wings to protect herself. With speed and agility, the Jews will vacate Jerusalem. You know, some people identify a great eagle as a first century description of a modern day military transport. Perhaps the Jews in Jerusalem get airlifted out. And there is a passage that may identify the location of this end times wilderness hideout that God has for the Jews. Isaiah 16 verse 4 predicts, Let my outcasts dwell with you, O Moab. Be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. For the extortioner, that is the Antichrist, is at an end. In Isaiah 16, verse 1, the prophet also mentions the Moabite cities of Selah or Petra. You've seen that city, if you've ever viewed the movie, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Petra was the backdrop for the final scenes in that movie. Whenever we go to Israel, we try to go to Petra. It's a wonderful, amazing place to go and visit, knowing that one day the Jews will hide out there from the beast, the Antichrist. The city covers an area of over 100 square miles. It's mammoth, but its canyon entryway is just a mile long by a few feet wide. And it's the narrowness of that entryway that makes it so easily defensible. This may be where, the, where God keeps the Jews protected out of Satan's reach for this last half of this terrible seven years. Now, the woman is nourished for a time and times and half a time. And here's a third way that John earmarks the same time frame. 1,260 days or 42 months or here, 
three and a half years. A time, that's one. Then times, plural, that's two. And then half a time, together, that's three and a half times or three and a half years that God protects the Jews from the presence of the serpent, John tells us. Yet after the Jews' evacuation, Satan opts for plan B. Verse 15. So the serpent spewed water out of his mouth like a flood after the woman that he might cause her to be carried away by the flood. A flood is another biblical idiom often used for an invading army. And this could be the Antichrist genocide squad sent to Petra to exterminate the Jews who dared to flee there. We'll talk more about this in chapter 13. But the Antichrist comes to power claiming to befriend the Jews. Instead, he'll turn into a Hitler type who will try to annihilate them. In verse 16, though, God again comes to their rescue. But the earth helped the woman and the earth opened its mouth. And swallowed up the flood which the dragon had spewed out of his mouth. The earth opens its mouth. Sounds like a well-positioned Middle Eastern earthquake comes to the rescue of the Jews. And the dragon was enraged with the woman. And he went to make war with the rest of her offspring who keep the commandments of God and have the testimony of Jesus Christ. As we mentioned, there will be Gentiles saved during the Great Tribulation. But along with the Jews, they'll be targeted for harsh treatment. After the dragon fails to destroy the Jews, he'll go after anybody who has embraced Jesus as their Lord. And you see, this is John's point. Until Jesus returns, there will always be a battle raging. The spiritual war that's being fought today is nothing new. And it'll be over soon enough. Right now, we need to overcome our enemy by trusting in the blood of the Lamb, by nailing down our testimony, and by settling what matters most to us. It's a jungle out there, but Jesus is the king of the jungle.